Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from the New York Stock Exchange, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Currency manipulator. The U.S. hits back after China's move to weaken their currency. Fed fury. Four former Fed chiefs say the central bank must remain free of political pressure and a total freeze. The U.S. imposing a full economic embargo on Venezuela. It's Tuesday. Let's make a move. Once again, to first move where there's so many moves going on, it's tough to keep up. But the heart of it, a move by China to weaken their currency and then a response from the United States to denote them a currency manipulator. We'll break down all the details. For now, though, take a look at futures right now. And I can tell you, we were a lot lower earlier following the worst session for U.S. stocks of 2019. The down, the S&P losing some 3%, the Nasdaq losing more. So the question is, why the turnaround? I think here it's the lack of follow-through on yesterday's currency weakness from China. What we saw today is them setting their daily currency fixing at a stronger level than feared. They also told foreign exporters the currency won't weaken further. This, of course, coming just one day after they allowed the currency to breach that psychologically important seven level versus the US dollar. We are below that level right now, but it's stabilized. And I think this is key. The big question, of course, what does the United States do now? Do we see more tariff threats, a higher rate on those tariffs? Chinese state media has argued that it won't devalue to offset the impact of those trade tariffs. They also argue, and this is an interesting one, that this move is merely a catch-up. The other currencies hit by the trade war have weakened versus the dollar. Think of the South Korean won. It's lost over 8% versus the value of the US dollar year to date versus China's loss of 2.6%. I think that's a pretty fair point. We also should point out the China's the challenge here for China, getting my C's mixed up. It's fine, they can weaken the currency, but the risk is that they spook domestic investors and they see capital outflows with people afraid that the value of their assets will fall going forward if the currency is weakening. It's a delicate balance. Let's get to the drivers and get some context. Christine Romans joins us now. Matt Rivers is also standing by for us in Hong Kong. Christine, to you first. Whatever you think of currency manipulation or not, the bottom line for global investors was they were looking at this and thinking, how on earth do you sign a trade deal under these conditions? You know, trade wars are really hard to win. And guess what? They're even harder to stop. I mean, this is why so many people were afraid at the beginning of this onset a year ago of this trade war. And you look at stocks uh, yesterday and they're from the highs, 6% for the S&P, for the Dow, 7% from the highs from the Nasdaq. That is the bite taken out of what had been record highs by concerns that this trade war 
won't end anytime soon. And I've been saying this morning, Julia, there's really no end in sight. I mean, Goldman Sachs telling its clients that now, after this latest round of escalation, uh, they don't expect the trade war to be over before the 2020 election. So where is their progress? I mean, at this point, there's a meeting, a low-level uh, uh, meeting of the two delegations in September. That means trade headlines are going to be risky until then. Absolutely. And you've got both sides here sort of gearing up for a longer term battle here and a trade war becoming a currency war here. Matt, to you, the Chinese have said, look, we're not going to devalue to offset the trade tariffs, whether or not it helps ultimately. But the point they're making is that they're just playing catch up that actually other currencies in the region have weakened. And why shouldn't China's? I'd argue they've got a point here. Yeah, I mean, that, that's certainly something that the Chinese government might, might look to. But, you know, your point right off the top, Julia, is really important that the Chinese government is fully aware that a currency war you know, is not going to be a good thing for China. Capital outflow in China has been a major concern for years now. There have been capital uh, you know, restrictions in terms of how much money you can take out of China, how much money the, the average Chinese person can take out of China for a long time now. In fact, here in Hong Kong, there have been, uh, you know, schemes, if you will, uh, for a long time for ordinary Chinese inside the mainland to work with people here based in Hong Kong to try and get their money out. So this is something that China has been worried about for a very, very long time. And I think that's part of the reason why, you know, we see that the UN trades a little bit lower in terms of in relation to the dollar in offshore trading inside mainland uh, the trading is a little bit more tightly restricted and the chinese government today didn't let it go past that seven mark and i think that shows you that the chinese you know we have an article on our website right now saying china blinked first and i think that's an apt description because china knows that if it continues to let the u.n weaken to a major way in a major way investors are going to get really concerned they're going to have to fight those capital outflows uh, and that's not something they want to do yeah, you make a great point. It's got to look controlled. You can let the currency weaken to some degree, but the moment it looks out of control, then you've got a real problem. Welcome to 2015. We saw the impact it had. Christine, the question is, if China did blink here, as Matt Papps points out, what does the US president and what does the White House do in response? Because if they threaten as a result of now denoting China a currency manipulator, more tariffs, higher tariffs, where does that leave us? Because they could, they could add more pressure here. And ultimately, where does that leave the U.S. consumer? There is another trench. I mean, there's $300 billion that they put 10% tariffs on that will begin in September. Um, they, they could go further on that and they could tariff everything or tax everything at 25%. The U.S. Uh, could. There's also, though, you know, this interesting, I, I think there's going to be a, a fight over labeling uh, China currency manipulator. The IMF, Christine Lagarde, just last month said that uh, China's external position is in line with fundamentals and desirable policies. So uh, the IMF does not see uh, that same, uh, that same, uh, view there. And there are those who are arguing this morning that calling it a currency manipulator was um, reflexive and, and sort of out of the norm for the U.S. They've been threatening to do this many times. I mean, the administration has had, what, five reports to Congress, windows in which it's supposed to label the currency manipulator and didn't. Um, and this time doing so outside of that normal window, you guys. Yeah, absolutely. And you've got the European Central Bank, you've got the Swiss Central Bank, the uh, Bank of Japan, all with negative interest rates. And yet China's the only bad guy around here. It's, uh, it's quite <laughs> fascinating. Matt, let's come back to you finally. How does China handle this? Because if you said delicate balancing act, they've got to be very careful. But under these conditions, everything you know about the culture in China, the lack of willingness to back down here, 
can they agree some kind of trade deal under these conditions? No, I mean, I think there's no way that we're looking at a trade deal anytime soon. The next time that they're going to meet is in September. I don't think anyone is going to be optimistic that there's going to be some sort of substantive deal uh, struck there that could lay the groundwork for some sort of signing ceremony between Donald Trump and Xi Jinping. I think you saw China allow its currency to devalue to a certain respect uh, to send a message. They're not going to you know, commit uh, economic suicide by letting it go too far, but they are willing to fight this out. Everything that we're seeing in state media, everything that we're seeing in public statements from the Chinese government, they are ready to dig in on this issue. And it's worth remembering, we are not far away from a U.S. election in which President Trump certainly stands an even chance of losing, if not a greater chance than even. We don't know how that's going to play out, but the Chinese government could be betting that maybe the next president doesn't really want to take on China in the way the Trump administration has. They're not going to campaign on China the way Donald Trump did. And so they're going to wait this out. Remember that the Chinese government does not plan in months. They plan in years and in decades in a lot of cases. And so maybe they're looking further out. They can ride this out. They feel their economy is okay for now. Uh, and they're digging in. So a trade deal, you know, it, it, the optimism over a trade deal is way lower than it was even last Wednesday. Yeah, zero-sum game. Christine Romans, to your point, trade wars are not easy to win and everybody hurts. Christine Romans, Matt Rivers, guys, thank you so much for that. All right, when uh, President Trump was tweeting yesterday, talking about China being a currency manipulator, he also said he hopes the Fed is listening. Wow, a response. Four former Fed chairs now warning over central bank independence. They wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal. Listen to this quote. Even the perception that monetary policy decisions are politically motivated or influenced by threats that policymakers won't be able to serve out their terms of office can undermine public confidence that the central bank is acting in the best interest of the economy. That can lead to unstable financial markets and worse economic outcomes. Matt Egan joins us now. Matt, they couldn't have said it more cleanly, even though they didn't name names. This doesn't help tackle the vulnerabilities in the U.S. economy. That's right, Julia. Um, you know, the, the overarching message here is don't mess with the Fed. That's what the four living central bank chiefs, former central bank chiefs, have all said in this really remarkable Wall Street Journal op-ed. And the message is clearly directed at President Trump, who, you know, more than any of his predecessors, kind of has forgotten that the Fed is not really there to serve at his whims and certainly not uh, on, on any sort of a political calendar. Now, at the top of this uh, op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, the four former Fed chiefs, they say explicitly that the Fed, they, they are united in their belief that the Fed must be free from short-term political pressure. And they specifically say that that includes the threat of being fired or demoted for political reasons. Now, clearly that is a reference to this battle between President Trump and Jerome Powell. Now, I think it really is remarkable that they felt the need to come out and say this. It, it really speaks to how threatened they believe uh, the independence of the Fed is in the Trump era. Um, Trump obviously has has really taken um, pride in, in sort of knocking down uh, norms and barriers, uh, both in economics and, and outside. Uh, but the Fed chiefs think that, you know, this is problematic. I, I also think it's, it's important to note that these are not just, you know, four um, lifelong Democrats. They were actually appointed by six different presidents, both Republicans and Democrats. And they 
include several legends. I mean, Paul Volcker, who famously tamed inflation in the 70s, Ben Bernanke, who led the Fed during the financial crisis. And, and one other really important point here, Julia, is the fact that, um, you know, President Trump is having this, this really epic battle with the Fed, but it's really with his own hand-picked chairman, right? I mean, he could have kept um, Janet Yellen in charge. Janet Yellen was extremely dovish, um, and, and Trump had said that he liked that Janet Yellen had low interest rates. Instead, he wanted to make his own mark. He went with Jerome Powell, who has arguably been more hawkish than some of his predecessors, and, and clearly that has not worked out well um, as far as uh, Trump's relationship with the Fed goes. Yeah, it's quite fascinating. You know, we tackled this. I spoke several months ago to former Fed chair Alan Greenspan, and I asked him about the risk, the perception risk here that you've got political interference, even if the structure of the Fed doesn't allow for it. Listen to what he had to say. The culture of the Federal Reserve System just does not allow that through a very long period of time, which... I, as I say, I wore a figurative, figurative earmuffs on the grounds that I was acutely aware of the fact that we were doing nothing that could remotely indicate we were doing something other than what the statute says we are doing. And unless you can make that point, you can't impeach a governor. And as far as I'm concerned, that's probably the case today. Yeah, we can withstand the noise of political interference, but the perception, market perception, consumer perception, perhaps outweighs that. And that's why they've chosen to speak up now, Matt. It's a critical moment, I think. No, I, I agree. Absolutely. Because, I mean, obviously the Fed takes this idea of independence so seriously, but it's actually not entirely up to them, right? If suddenly um, investors and other market participants believe that the Fed is no longer doing what it sees as best, well, then they do lose some of that independence. And, you know, we only have to look to what just happened Arrest. in Turkey. Right. Turkey central bank was slow to raise interest rates to fight inflation. Infl inflation spiked. Uh, Erdogan then removed the central bank chief and then put in a new person who quickly lowered interest rates dramatically. And so that is an example of what can happen when investors um, no longer have full confidence in the independence of a central bank. And clearly, we don't want that to happen with the Federal Reserve. Yeah, absolutely. Matt Egan, thank you so much for that. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories that we're following around the world. President Trump is set to visit the two U.S. cities that experienced mass shootings over the weekend. He's expected to head to El Paso, Texas on Wednesday, where 22 people lost their lives. He'll also be visiting Dayton, Ohio, where nine people were killed. His visit comes as debate over federal gun controls intensifies. Rosa Flores is in El Paso, Texas, where thousands gathered to remember the victims on Monday night. Rosa, just describe what we saw last night and, and what people are saying at this point. It's still a community, I'm sure, in, in shock and, of course, in mourning. You know, Julia, there's a lot of raw emotion here in El Paso. Uh, a lot of people who are visiting the memorials. There's a memorial behind me that keeps on growing. There are so many candles that have been brought here that as you walk by, you can smell the scent of the candles. That's how uh, that, that, that's the outpouring that has been uh, uh, seen here at the scene. Now, um, there is 
another visitor that is expected, and that's the president of the United States, uh, Donald Trump. And from talking to people here in El Paso, there are mixed emotions about him visiting this city at this very painful time. Um, some individuals feel that um, they can't reconcile the words that President Trump has used to refer to immigrants, um, to refer to the caravan of migrants. And, and also, they can't reconcile his immigration policies with him visiting this site. For example, the Remain in Mexico policy, which has hundreds of Central Americans just a few miles south of me here who are waiting for asylum. And that, that policy, of course, forces uh, asylum seekers to wait in Mexico until their immigration uh, appointment is set in the United States. So there's a lot of emotion, a lot of pain. And, and people here in El Paso, uh, some of them feel that it is his duty to visit this site because of the pain and because he is the president of the United States. Now, I met one woman who's from El Paso, and uh, she is 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 not very happy with President Trump uh, visiting her city, but she hopes that something positive does come out of it. Take a listen. It's his responsibility to show up when something like this happens in a city, when there's any type of tragedy. I think it, it is part of his responsibility as a leader of the, of the United States. However, I, seeing his recent commentaries and his responses to this tragedy, I don't think he has. It's really coming from him, from, you know, the goodness of his heart. You know, I'm hoping for the best. I would hate for any more violent acts to happen with his visit, but I do appreciate that he is coming down. As she mentioned, one of the biggest concerns, Jen, are violent acts. They want those violent acts to stop. Jen. Rosa Flores in El Paso, Texas, and our hearts go out to everyone involved. All right, let's move on. A United Nations report says North Korea has earned as much as $2 billion through cyber attacks on financial institutions. A summary obtained by CNN suggests that Pyongyang may be using the illegal revenue to fund its weapons program. U.S. military officials say the North Koreans launched two more projectiles early Tuesday. Indian-controlled Kashmir is in a second day of lockdown, this after it was stripped of a special status, giving it significant autonomy. The Indian government has cut telephone lines and the internet. It also placed several prominent politicians under house arrest. Tensions are high after India moved to assert more control over the region that's also claimed by Pakistan. Right, still to come here on First Move. Venezuela in an economic vice. President Trump stepping up sanctions. And Tencent turning up the tunes. The Chinese internet titan in talks to buy a stake in Universal Music Group. That's all coming up. Stay with CNN. first move and we're joined by Dan David, founder of Wolfpack Research. Dan, you're a real China specialist or at least some of the downsides, the darker side perhaps of investing in China. What yeah. do you make of what we've seen from China in the last couple of days and the shift lower in the currency? It was a signal. Yes, and it was one of uh, the quick levers that they could pull right away. And as far as them being labeled a currency manipulator, they do manipulate their currency but not in the way we're describing it. They, they defend it. Like they did last night. I think, where did it end? Seven spot, four or five? Yes. They came in and defended it. Could have it could have been again. a lot worse. It could, well, <laughs> if they let it float, where would it go? Eight, ten? You don't know. 
So the tariffs are going to affect the common Chinese citizen now, as Trump has said. Uh, from the beginning, I don't think he envisioned it happening this way. Yes. Uh, but yeah, I, I think this is something they could do quickly. They don't have a whole lot that they could do right away. You know, a lot of people, and I think global investors were looking at this and saying, and we've been discussing on the show, how on earth do you sign a trade deal under these kind of conditions, given what we know about the culture in China, what we know about this president in particular? What do you make of that? Do you think it's right to be tackling China at this moment? Which president are we talking about? Are we talking about President Xi or President Trump? <laughs> you can take your pick. Yeah, right. You can take your pick. Uh, so I think that we, we, we count this as a trade deal it's really a trade and an investment deal it's a relationship deal we now have an opportunity with China to reset our relationship we took their word for it 20 years ago and here we are we've seen where we what's happened and we don't have justice reform in China where companies can have civil litigation there and fairness so we have fraud that's pervasive there and it's pervasive here coming out of China I mean you're incredibly well known for your work trying to shed light on corporate corruption in China and the risks that US investors face in things like investing in IPOs, in Chinese IPOs in the United States. Your work's far broader, but do you think that's something that perhaps this White House should look at at this stage and say, you know what, we're not going to allow Chinese companies like an Alibaba, like a Locking Coffee, for example, to IPO and to raise money in the United States, taking US investment and then shipping it back off to China to help build their companies. It will be a strong move, a bold move. Do you think it's the right move? It is the right move, and I think they are looking at that. Justice reform is on the table. And we talk a lot about farmers and how much they're losing, and we talk a lot about tariffs. But what is on the table are a lot of different issues in this trade negotiation, justice reform being a part of it, IP theft being a part of it. You wouldn't think that that's notionally part of trade, but it is. IP theft, forced technology transfer is a part of it. That's why I say this is a relationship reset. And China's in a weakened position. This is the really the only time we can do this. And if we don't do it now, if we don't start to put our values forward the way China has to their credit, they put their values forward. Now we have to put our values forward. Define weakened position here for China, because that's one of the big debates we have. How resilient is the U.S. economy, the U.S. consumer in the face of tariffs versus China's economy? And actually, what very little we know about what's going on in terms of the economics there, the banking sector. What's your sense from all the work that you do? How vulnerable are they? I think they're very vulnerable. Uh, you've seen in the last couple of months, Boshong Bank uh, have to get uh, taken over by the state. That hasn't happened since 94. Uh, another bank, Jinzhou Bank, uh, had to be recapitalized and they're asking the big four banks in China to look at regional banks. And like we've seen this movie play out in the United States in the savings and loan crisis. There were just a few, it was isolated, no problem. Well, then there was a lot. When we look at Bear Stearns back in 2008, it was just Bear Stearns, no problem, nothing to see here. Lehman Brothers, a collapse. Their banking issues are vast. And then we've got a real estate bubble. And the currency devaluation doesn't help that. A lot of the real estate loans are denominated in the dollar. So there, there are positions here that we can exploit as they would do and have done to us. How important is Hong Kong and the protests vital. that we've seen? Very quickly, talk to me about this and the vital importance of this and the protests that we're seeing is a part of the whole story here. 
Well, it's all about freedom of speech, and it's all about freedom of expression, and they don't want to give it up. They've had it, and they understand that taking it off the table for now means that China's going to come back and just make it a law overnight, six months or a year from now, and they're not going to put up with it. And I, I fear there's going to be bloodshed over it, but Hong Kong is a part of China. And and China is going to force that issue. It's going to be a mess. The timing. Dan, yes. fantastic to have you on. Dan Thank David, you. we will get you back because there's plenty more to discuss yes, here. Dan is. David, founder of Wolfpack Research. The market open is next. Stay with First Move. Exchange. That was the opening bell in Tuesday's session. A higher open for stocks, clawing back some of the losses yesterday after we saw the worst day on Wall Street this year. The Dow, the S&P falling some 3%. The Nasdaq falling 3.5%. We're also just keeping an eye on the fangs here too. They also are bouncing back after Monday's losses. Apple was in fact the worst performing fang name down over 5%. Remember China exposure there front and center. So always sensitive when we see Chinese headlines. The 10-year Treasury yield is also a little bit higher as well, above that 1.7% bouncing off three-year lows. The three-month and the 10-year inversion, remember when the three-month is above the 10-year yield, that inversion widened on Monday to its most extreme level since 2017. In previous times, that denoted a recession warning, though. You can argue the technicals on this one. Let's talk it all through because there's a lot going on. Dryden Pence, Chief Investment Officer at Pence Capital Management, joins us now. Dryden, fantastic to have you with us. I'm Thank sure you. you got one or two phone calls yesterday from uh, investors going, what on earth's going on and what do you think here? Well, we did, and I think part of the issue is is we normally get these 5 to 10% drawdowns. They happen a couple of times a year. Right. And the China issue was just the catalyst for something that we thought was kind of set up to happen anyway. So that's kind of what started it. Here you go. And then it levels off. So It's fascinating you say that. There's been a lot of people coming on this show saying, look, we are ripe at this stage for a 5 a 10% pullback. Don't panic. We've just forgotten that these things actually are normal in the grand sweep of a, a broader stock market rally here. We've exactly. kind of forgotten that. Exactly. I mean, if you look at the last several years, it takes oh, maybe 10 days to drop 7 to 10%, and then probably 60 to 70 days to recover. Sometimes it's speeding up and getting faster than that. So this is the normal battle rhythm of the market, and people forget that. Uh, so I think that we just have to recognize there'll be a catalyst, the market will fall that will go down, and then we'll go back up to what's supported by earnings and normal business cycle. You can say that, but then if you look at what's going on as far as fears of currency wars are concerned, the threatening by, by the White House of the Federal Reserve here that's trying to manage the economy. There are a lot of risks here that pose longer-term risks, particularly to the U.S. consumer when we're talking about tariffs, that actually aren't going away anytime soon. How are you confident to be able to say, 
Let's bring it back to the fundamentals and focus on what drives stock markets higher sure. over a longer term. It's, it's what drives the economy and what drives, more even the markets, it's what's driving the underlying economy. Yeah. The American consumer is making more money than they've ever made, more people are working than they ever have, and that is 70% of our economy is kind of driving this underpinning of a really decent foundation. And everything's just bouncing around on the top of that. And what about China? Because you mentioned, and you mentioned in, in your notes, that when you look at the noises coming from China about companies that are adapting to the conditions, they're looking at alternatives to China. So whatever we see going on right now, the trade war is having an impact domestically in China. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, every day that goes by, this is our opinion, every day that goes by, China gets weaker and the U.S. either gets stronger or stays the same because companies are moving away. So about seven out of ten companies are looking to move. And every day this goes on, they move production away from China and that weakens them long term. They don't have as much time as they think they do to roll this out. And that's really, really important because once those companies move production to Vietnam or somewhere else, it's not going to come back. So you're taking, take some of the fear out of this and again, look at the fundamentals and look at the reaction and it's an argument for ultimately coming to a deal here of some sort. Both parties, on, China, on the China-US issue, both parties benefit from a deal. Everybody wants to make a deal, but it's kind of how do we get to the final terms? And I think most of this noise is actually, in my mind, beginning to make the markets a little bit numb to it because these things have got to work their way through. But in the end, the U.S. has a much stronger hand than China does. Every day that goes by, more production moves away from China, not to it. They're now, they're the, the, they're now our third largest trading partner, not our, our largest. So their position is deteriorating much faster than anybody else's. Yeah, behind Mexico and Canada. Okay, so a company that really would like a resolution here, and they've said it many times, is Apple. One of your top picks. Why are you still confident in this environment? We think about Apple very, very long term. They're going to be able to reallocate production where they need to. They're moving some to India and all of those things. Obviously, there's some domestic sales of Apple into China. But when you think about what Apple is doing strategically, we are dependent upon the device. And now they want to make us dependent upon the services. <laughs> so that it, it not only has it become an appendage of our daily life, it's wrapped up into our everything we do. So even in a worst-case scenario, ratcheting up further of tensions between China and the United States, uh, a fall off in iPhone sales. Dan Ives, one analyst, saying we could see six to eight million fewer iPhones sold less next year as a result of the trade tariffs. You're still comfortable longer term with, with Apple here? Still comfortable long term with Apple and okay. probably look at this volatility as more of an opportunity. Uh, to buy more. Exactly. Interesting. Exactly. Um, Let's talk Disney. Absolutely. Resuming earnings after the uh, close tonight, and I know this is your top pick. Tell me why. Disney, Disney now has one-third of the box office. When they bought 21st Century, and they have all of these great characters, all of this rich content that they're able to have to capture the imagination of the public, whether it's in the U.S. or globally, for generations. A good story is a good story is a good story, and they own those. And I think that Disney now has the ability to really expand and, and, and run the table with, when it comes to content. Uh, and I think that we're really excited about them long term. Can anyone touch them here? To your point, they've gathered a huge wealth of content here, whether it's Marvel, whether it's the products that they already had. We've not even seen Disney Plus yet, and it's coming in at a cheaper price point than Netflix. There is a lot of excitement here. What might they get wrong? 
What, what they could get wrong is, is you, know, you could get a technical rollout problem. Or you, but they don't do that very often, right? So anything that they get wrong, they probably are able to fix over a short period of time. Right. They tend to not get big things wrong. Uh, and so that's one reason why we're very, very confident about that. They're going to be able to capture the imagination of children. They're going to be able to capture the imagination of adults. And that, that's what's going to happen for a very long period of time. Yeah, watch this space. What was your price target very quickly on that, on Disney? It's, we don't really can higher. publish price. It's higher. <laughs> the, the, the short answer is it's Good higher. <laughs> yeah. Brian Pence. Thank, Thank you. Thank you for Pence Capital Management there. All right. We're going to take a quick break here too. But coming up, we're heading live to Caracas as the U.S. imposes a total embargo now, a total economic embargo on Venezuela. What does this mean? Stay with us for all the details. We're back in two. minutes now into the trading day and U.S. stocks do appear to be holding in positive territory, recovering from a punishing Monday after the U.S.-China trade tensions heightened further and the denotion of China as a currency manipulator by the U.S. Things, though, do appear to be stabilizing with the yuan back to over 7-1 per dollar here. Hopes of a trade deal, though, between the two countries right now lie in tatters. Greg Valliere is the chief U.S. policy strategist at AGF Investments. Greg, I don't even know where to start, quite frankly, uh, given the action over the last few days. But what do you make of what we've seen just in the last 24 hours between China and the United States? How do they sign a trade deal under these conditions? Well, first of all, I think it's way too premature to say China blinked. I think that would that would be a mistake to look cocky that they they caved because I, I don't think that's certain. I think the talks are still in real trouble. And I would add one other element that I haven't heard a lot of people talk about, and that's what's going on in Hong Kong. Uh, the Chinese are saying the U.S. is instigating these protests, these riots. The Chinese are hinting they might move to crush the insurrection. So that, to me, is background noise that could become a, a, a real irritant as the talks continue to drag on. What's the probability that they risk that, to your point, on Hong Kong? I mean, we have China now with protests on its doorstep. They're very sensitive to that domestically as well. And this is a financial conduit for China in and out of the mainland here. Do we really think they'd risk that at this moment in time? There was a great story over the weekend, I forget which newspaper, talking about the Communist Party, which has their big annual meeting in a couple of weeks, really tightening the screws domestically in China, suppressing all dissent. So if these riots continue in Hong Kong, I think that the uh, Revolutionary Army could, be, it could become a factor. So they just move to suppress the protests because they don't want to look like their yes. authorities being flouted here. Well, if, if they don't suppress the protest, could it metastasize? Could it move into the, 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 the mainland? I mean, that's the last thing that a communist dictatorship wants, is to see some serious public dissent. And just to be clear, Greg, to, to your point, the Chinese are, are blaming the United States and saying actually they're inciting the, the protest here to try and destabilize yeah. the region. Do we believe that? No, I think that's groundless. I don't think we have any... Uh, any, certainly no overt, I don't even think covert uh, involvement in Hong Kong. I don't, I don't believe it at all, but the Chinese government is trying to stir people up. I mean, the, just to go back to the trade talks themselves, Julia, I think the ill will is so pervasive 
between the two countries that it's really unrealistic to expect any kind of breakthrough on trade for months and months to come. So this is just one domestic problem that President Trump is now facing. The threat of more tariffs, the pressure that places on the U.S. consumer. We've also had a weekend of horrific killings in in two areas in the United States as well, in in Dayton, Ohio, of course, in El Paso, Texas. What do we make of the president's handling of this? Because the broader swathe of the United States does want to see some form of action to curtail semi-automatic rifles. And the president here has been reticent. I would say very quickly, there are three issues where he looks out of touch, Julia. Number one, global warming. You look at the the scenes from Greenland and the Arctic Circle of the melting, and he doesn't even acknowledge there's a problem. Number two, we just discussed trade. I think that's going to be an ongoing irritant for him. But now, of course, we see the, the gun deaths, the white nationalism, and I think he said what he had to say on the teleprompter yesterday, but he is, I think, yet to convince the public that he gets it. When you've got 80, 90 percent of the public wanting more background checks and Mitch McConnell and Trump refuse to even allow a vote, there's a problem for the Republicans. Climate change, trade, if it impacts the consumer and gun control as well. The counter to your point would be Biden messed up on the areas where they were sending sympathies as well. To your point, if this becomes a vote for change in 2020, you could argue that that perhaps Trump is not the winner, but Biden also looks a bit out of touch here too. Isn't isn't that a great irony that the, the, the Democrats you would think would be doing better Joe Biden a couple days ago uh, offered condolences to the people of Houston and Michigan. Of course, Trump yesterday offered condolences to the people of Toledo, not Dayton. So you've got two leaders who don't seem to be as plugged in as you'd like to see. Yeah, we need to see another game changer, perhaps. Greg Fellier, we will get you back to talk about this. Um, Because we have to move on now. Greg Fellier, AGF Investments. All right, breaking news now. The Pulitzer Prize and Nobel-winning author Toni Morrison has died. Morrison was a prolific writer of the African-American experience. Her prose was like poetry, writing such memorable lines as, if you surrender to the air, you could ride it. Morrison won the Pulitzer along with the American Book Award for her 1987 novel, Beloved. Toni Morrison was 88 years old. All right, let's turn now to Venezuela, another front in which the U.S. is ramping up the pressure. The president issued an executive order Monday that freezes all Venezuelan government assets in the United States. Stefano Aposibon is in Caracas and has more. Stefano, my understanding is now that this is a total economic embargo, so it puts Venezuela on a par with the likes of Iran, uh, Cuba, Syria. Is that right? And and what's this going to mean for a country that's already particularly for the population here, in in deep trauma. Yes, exactly, uh, exactly, Julia. This is uh, yet another turn of the screw, if uh, we want to call it that way, from the U.S. administration to try isolate uh, the government of embattled President Nicolas Maduro even uh, further, this time by essentially freezing every single asset that the uh, Bolivarian Republic of Venezuela has in, uh, in, uh, in, the, in the United States. And let's remember, importantly, for uh, United States, uh, uh, for, the, for the stock market and uh, for oil 
analysts and observers that uh, Venezuela control has a stake into the United States refinery Citgo, which of course uh, means uh, uh, concrete effects at the gas station for millions of uh, America. This stake is now in an international arbitrary, uh, is into court between, in a battle between uh, the government of embattled President Nicolas Maduro and uh, the administration of uh, Juan Guaido, the leader of uh, the opposition whom the United States consider is the rightful leader of uh, Venezuela. How this measure, in part last night, late on Monday night, will uh, Will, will inflict on what, what will imply for uh, the trial on Citgo and for the many other assets that Venezuela has in the United States is yet to be understood, is yet to be, uh, yet, is yet to be cleared out. But also another question is what happens to the American companies that have business here in, uh, in Venezuela? Just uh, last week Chevron was uh, given uh, three months of a new license, a three months uh, postponement of uh, their license to do business here in Venezuela. One option could be that the Venezuelans retaliate by expropriating uh, Chevron assets here in Caracas. That, of course, uh, has not happened yet, but, uh, but with reaction coming up from the government of Nicolas Maduro, expected later today, we'll be watching it very, very closely because uh, the implications of this move are very, very important, Julia. Yeah, Stefano, you're asking all the right questions, I think, but for me it comes down to the people. I mean, Nicolas Maduro all the way along has blamed the United States and foreign actors for the economic crisis in the country as a result of the sanctions. At what point do the people go, you know what, we've had enough and ultimately rise up and we see the military doing the same because for all the flare-ups, we've not seen that pivotal moment where they decide enough's enough. Perhaps, yes, we have not seen that uh, pivotal moment where the coalition, if you want to call it that way, the, 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 the organism of power that supports Nicolas Maduro crumbles under the effect of such an intense international pressure. We have seen people taking onto the streets and actually screaming enough is enough for, for many, many years, at least uh, since 2014, 2017, the dramatic effect of, uh, of these uh, economic crises that seems to have no end in sight is really affecting the people, but not the coalition of, uh, that is supporting Nicolas Maduro. Perhaps this new uh, turn of the screw, this new uh, move by the United States, especially if followed up by partners in Europe, Canada, the rest of Latin America who are meeting in, uh, in Lima, the capital of Peru, as we speak in yet another international summit to try broker a solution to the Venezuelan stalemate. If those leaders will follow through and uh, Maduro finds himself more and more isolated, perhaps, but only perhaps, uh, the coalition that puts him in power will crumble and Venezuela could finally see an end to, to this dramatic power tussle at the heart of the state. Uh, Julia. Yeah, we'll watch that. But for the people, it's a never-ending crisis. Stefano, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that. All right, we're going to take a quick break here. But up next, not selling for a song. China's Tencent wants a piece of label Universal Music Group. But how much will it pay for a stake in Swift, Drake, Gaga and Co? That's up next.
Welcome back to First Move with a look at today's boardroom brief. Apple's credit card has arrived, but only to a select few. Apple randomly selected a limited number of people to use the card ahead of its launch later this month. The credit card is issued by Goldman Sachs and will be powered by MasterCard's network. Vivendi hit the right note with Investors Tuesday shares up over 5% after the French media company announced it's in talks to sell a stake in Universal Music Group to China's Tencent. Lady Gaga, Taylor Swift and Drake are among the artists represented by UMG. Paul Namonica joins us now. Paul, talk us through the details. 10% stake, but with the option to acquire a further 10%, I believe. Yeah, this obviously creates a, a global music giant, and the China angle is what's really interesting, of course, because right. of Tencent. This would be uh, you know, valued at about $34 billion U.S., which is more than what Spotify is currently valued at. And I think this deal, really what it's about, Julia, is streaming, because what's interesting is that Tencent actually has a stake in Spotify, and Spotify also owns a stake in Tencent Music, the subsidiary of Tencent that is the music side of the business. So I think this really shows that if this deal goes through, it's yet another threat to potentially Apple Music and really would possibly strengthen Spotify. Yeah, interesting. Two things for me here. They wanted to sell 50%, so who else do they find? And are the regulators going to have a problem with this? It's still a Chinese company. It's still a U.S. company that they're investing in. Interesting yeah, timing. I, yeah, given, given the timing right now with all of the trade rhetoric and the tension between the U.S. and China, it's possible that this deal gets looked at a lot more closely by regulators. But if it does, in fact, go through, then be interesting to see because Tencent has, you know, all these users, millions of users in the Chinese market that could be a much bigger uh, play for Western music companies to cater to. And I think it's obviously, again, good news for Spotify, potentially bad news for Apple. Yeah, access to that lucrative Chinese market. Paula Monica, thank you so much for that. All right, let me give you a quick look at what we're seeing for markets right now. We are holding in positive territory after what was a steep sell-off in U.S. equities yesterday. Can we hold on to it? We'll be back in a couple of hours to check. But for now, you've been watching First Move. Time to go make yours. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.